You're listening to the Friday Morning Podcast with hosts Bill Ballinger and Dennis Denno discussing Michigan politics and political history. The Friday Morning Podcast has you covered. Hey, Bill, before we go to our guest, let's talk a little bit about our partner, DeadlineDetroit.com. Well, Deadline Detroit is a one-stop online news site that aggregates the best stories from local, national, and international media about Metro Detroit. It also produces original reporting and provides commentary from top-rate local journalists. Great. Now let's go to our guest. And with me now is State Representative Matt Kolazar. He is a Democrat representing the 20th House District which includes the cities of Northville and Plymouth, the townships of Northville and Plymouth, and a portion of the city of Canton. Representative Kolazar is the assistant leader for the House Democrats, and he is also on the Education Committee and on the Health Policy Committee. Representative Kolazar is in his first term in the House, and prior to his election, he worked as a teacher and coach in the Airport Community School District and was president of the Airport Education Association in Carleton. Welcome to the Friday Morning Podcast, State Representative Matt Kolazar. Hey, Dennis. Thanks for having me. So I'm going to admit I've never heard of the Airport Community School District. Uh, where is that? Is it safe to assume that some, that's someplace near Romulus, nearby Wayne Metro Airport? You know what the funny part is? It actually has nothing to do with uh, Detroit Metro Airport down there in Romulus. It actually is in northern Monroe County, right when you cross the Wayne Monroe border. Long story short, there used to be an Air Force base there, and they called the school there the airport school. And when the Air Force base moved away, they kept the name airport. So that's how it got its origins. But it's in uh, Carleton, which is right over the Wayne Monroe border. Well, let's talk a little bit about that school district. Uh, I mean, is it considered a? Do you consider it a, a rural school district? Is it a wealthy school district? Is it? I mean, what you know, is it pretty diverse? Not. What's um, it like? The school district that I worked in, which was about a half an hour south of the district I represent now in uh, the state house, um, the school district I worked in was actually it was very rural. Um, it was very rural. It also had. Um, um, there was a large mobile home community there as well, or a few large mobile home communities. So you had a lot of farms, a lot of mobile home communities. Uh, for several years I was working there, it was a Title I district, um, which meant there was a significant um, free and reduced lunch uh, population. And uh, just being there, working there really um, showed me, you know, whereas we think about, when we think about all the rigors we're putting students through, a lot of times the biggest rigor is making sure that they have food on the table. And it's always that empathetic approach we need to have to our students. So let's talk about that. You have a bill that would help schools and school districts pay for lunches for students. What, what Tell us about that bill. So I partnered up with uh, Representative Shannon from Sterling Heights, and we created a bill package that was called, it would set up what was called the Feed Our Future Fund. And what it would basically do is it would give um, people a chance to do a tax write-off for money that, they, that could then be donated to um, school lunch funds to help pay off um, school lunch debt. Now, what's interesting is while the House never took up those bills, the governor's team was so impressed with the idea, they actually negotiated it into the budget we just passed for FY21. And um, what happened was is uh, there's a million dollars now that went to pay off school lunch debts. So while we couldn't get the bill through the House, the governor's team liked the idea, negotiated with Republican leadership, and even though it didn't pass legislatively, it still got put into the budget. I'm really proud of that because that was a lot of behind-the-scenes negotiating. 
Well, that's great. Congratulations on that. So I'm still kind of a little confused. So when you talk about a debt, is this paying off the debt for a teacher or a school district or a student, family? Who's who's incurring the be, debt? These would be students that normally, could, that for whatever reason, couldn't pay a lunch bill. And schools obviously want to make sure kids don't go hungry, so there's a cost there. Um, and uh, as a result, there is a lunch debt. And as simple as that, it, it is what it sounds like. And what happens is, is this money comes in and wipes that slate clean. Well, that's great. And that's obviously statewide. And is it as a million dollars enough? Is it a drop in the bucket when we're, we're talking about a lunch debt? Um, you know what? It's overall, I, it's not enough, but it's a significant portion when you think about how much one school lunch costs. Um, but that being said, is it? And it's something to continue to work toward. I mean, you know, I am of the belief that, you know, we, we put all these demands on our students. All the, uh, You know, you think of standardized testing and you think of all the pressures that are there. We need to make sure, first and foremost, our kids are getting fed. And until we address poverty and hunger, I think second, I think um, standardized tests will always come second to that type of thing. We need to make sure our kids are getting their most basic needs met. So let's keep talking about education. You're on the House Education Committee. Um, you're one of the Democrats, so obviously you're in the minority in that in that uh, in that committee. What is going on in that committee? Um, are, you, are you? Do you feel like it's accomplishing what needs to be accomplished? Oh no, not at all. Um, you know, first of all, I think I will tell you I have been very disappointed with how partisan the committee really has been. Um, in my first two years in the House, we have taken up precisely one Democratic bill. Um, which I think, it, or actually, you know, voted on one Democratic bill. And it was about, it was a good bill. It was about a good writing bill, um, ironically. But that was the only time we took up anything. Um, the House Education Committee and the chair um, are heavily funded by the DeVos family. And those priorities are reflected in the legislation that they bring up. And it's been that way for years now in the State House. And, um, you know, I've found that while I'm there, the the Great Lakes Education Project, which is a DeVos-associated group, um, they always seem to have bills that they just love and they love to testify on. But uh, these bills seldom are pro-public school. And it has been very frustrating because we're not putting our kids first. We're not putting our public schools first. We're putting other groups first. And it's gotten really frustrating. And, I'm, you know, this is why I'm hopeful that we'll flip the house here in a week and we can really start to address what's best for our students. So you talk about the DeVos family agenda when it comes to education. What is that agenda, and why are you so opposed to it? So their big thing is school choice and charter schools. And people say to me, well, why are you so against this? I always say, I'm not against charter schools. I'm against the for-profit motive in charter schools. And this is a DeVos idea. So what's happening is, is we are ba- if somebody sends their student to a charter school, they're taking out, you know, if it's the state minimum, you know, they're taking out, you know, over $8,000, almost $9,000 per student, and they're putting it into a charter school. And um, they're taking that money then, a portion of that is taken out of the classroom and put right into the pockets of a wealthy corporation. So you're, you know, an education management organization. So what's happening is you took money right out of your community and you gave it to these for-profit EMOs. And I have such a problem with that because that went right out of the school, right out of the classroom, right out of the community. That's not how you're gonna build public schools. And the other thing with that is because of it, it's, crea- it's basically, you know, turns kids into a dollar sign where you're trying to attract as many of them as you can. Um, and sometimes, as we've seen with a lot of these charter schools, the accountability measures just aren't there. 
They don't have elected board, elected boards. They don't have the same measures of transparency. They also um, do a lot they can do to crack down on collective bargaining with their teachers. All of this means extra money to go to that EMO. This isn't about students. It's about profit, and I have a real problem with that. So let's backtrack a little bit. You talked about uh, the the Democrats hopefully flipping the state house. The Dems need uh, f- three seats to tie, four seats to get majority control. How's that looking? And are you involved at all in the campaigns? Um, you know what? I'm feeling really good about where we're at right now, but we have to do the work all the way through election day to get there. So I am not a part of our campaign team. But that being said, I was also in 2018. I was the only. Democrat to unseat an incumbent Republican. And so for me, it's about because, you know, it is such a newly Democratic district. I have been very focused on my own district and staying at home and knocking doors, talking to um, voters all across the district. And over the last two years, I've really focused on just having solid constituent services and making sure that um, my residents' most important um, needs are being met and make sure their most important um, concerns are being addressed. So I've been very focused on my own campaign here. That being said, I was an AP government teacher before this. I love to look at campaigns. So I've been um, watching all of what's going around the state, and I feel really good about where we're at. I think uh, you know a lot of the there are a lot of districts that, especially uh, Oakland County, along with Western Wayne here, that are just really fed up with what we've seen out of uh, Trump Republicanism, and uh, I think that's going to help us out in the state house as well. All right, so let's go back to your bills. You have a bill that would allow uh, communities to have remote meetings, so like city councils, county commissions. Um, Let's talk a little bit about that bill. How's that bill looking, and and what's going on with it? So I had a bill that actually would allow the legislature to meet remotely in times of emergency or disaster. And this is something I introduced back in the springtime. And what it was is we just were not able to meet for a long (laughs) time. Like, you know, there was a lot of people... Obviously, if you look in the spring and where we were with COVID-19, um, you know, the safety of all of us was very much in question. And so we, there was a lot of complaining on the other side of the aisle about how the governor wasn't working with the legislature. She said, I'm willing to work with you. And I, I said, let's make this easier. Let's just have it so we can meet remotely. And then what we can do is we can still have votes. We can still, you know, there are secure methods we can use. And um, we can then be partnered up with the governor and we can actually have these negotiations rather than waiting till the fall like we did and doing it all last second. So I introduced the bill. Um, it was not taken up at all. It wasn't giving a hearing. It wasn't even, it was basically ignored. But this would have solved a lot of problems early on. And uh, I always got really fed up when I would hear from the other side of the aisle, the governor won't even work with us. Well, I kept thinking to myself, you won't even take up a bill that would make it easier for you to meet. And so it was frustrating, but it was not taken up. Now, we still do go back in person now. Um, you know, I uh, we haven't been back in a couple of weeks. Obviously, you know, tis the season. But um, when we were there last, I was appreciative because for the longest time, my colleagues on the other side of the aisle, a vast majority of them weren't even wearing masks when they were on the House floor. And uh, last week, the speaker gave a mask to everyone, and I saw a lot more of them were finally wearing it. And uh, that was a little bit more comforting, but, uh, you know, I, I was really disappointed that masks became such a partisan issue. Yeah, I mean, do you think if the Dems flip the state house that the new Democratic Speaker of the House will, will just say, hey, let's just meet remotely. We don't need a bill to do this, but it's something that's in the best interest of 
everyone who works uh, in the legislature. Um, so, you know, do you think the new speaker, if there is a Democrat, do you think the new speaker will do that? No, I don't think so. I think it because it does require um, it does require a legislative action. It requires a bill to get passed um, because because it basically does say in our state constitution that you know we have to meet in person. Basically, so it would require actual um, legal language. And uh, even if it got passed through the House, um, I don't see it ever passing the Senate. Um, so at least not for the next two years. So um, I don't think so. Um, and it's not something the speaker speaker can just do without legislative action. Okay. And then you have a you have a third bill I was hoping to talk about about if a, a police officer or firefighter um, loses their life in the line of duty, um, the state would cover the tuition of their kids. Is that correct? Yeah, this is so. This is a bill. This is one of the first bills I introduced, and just really, really excited about it. What we discovered was right now in the state of Michigan, if a police officer or firefighter dies in the line of duty. Their children can go to college at a state tuition, or a, sorry, can go to uh, a state university or a community college tuition free, but only if the surviving family member um, or the surviving family is about 400% of the poverty line or less. And what we discovered is that still, I mean, you're basically saying that one loss is, more, is worse than another by doing that. So what my bill does is it removes the 400% poverty restriction and makes it so if your parent was a police officer or firefighter, and they die in the line of duty, your child goes to college at one of our, um, at one of our state universities or community colleges tuition-free. And that bill did get a hearing um, back last winter, so actually just under a year ago. It was back last January. And um, I've had several conversations with uh, the appropriations chair, with uh, members of the committee. The uh, majority vice chair is one of the co-sponsors of the bill. It was a bipartisan bill which I was very proud of. Um, and uh, my hope is, is as we approach lame duck here, um, this, this bill does indeed get passed because it's a, pretty much a mere drop in the bucket in terms of uh, overall budget. And we discovered within the, the bucket that the money will come out of, that money's already there in a fund that also does that for veterans' children. This would just add our police officers and firefighters. There was enough money left over that it really, it's not affecting our budget. So it's a common sense bill we honor the memory of those who um, who um, served to protect us, and uh, I'm really, really excited about this bill and very hopeful that it gets passed in lame duck. Yeah, well, that's awesome. I mean, not to put you on the spot, but do you have a sense of how many children that would affect or how many police and firefighters lose their lives uh, in, on the line of duty in a year? Yes, so the average is about, um, is about three per year that we saw. It's not many. Which is good. We don't want, if we ever had it a lot to where this was really hurting the budget, we'd have much bigger problems. Um, so it's not a lot. And it's one of those things. And what it, the way this all came up is I actually met a widow of a police officer who was uh, shot and killed in the line of duty. He was actually filling out a, an accident report, and a, um, a person pulled up right next to his cruiser and shot him because he wanted, with a rifle because he wanted his handgun. And fast forward, she got remarried later. And she hadn't, I mean, her child was a baby at the time. She got remarried, you know, rebuilt her life, and then found out because her and her husband, you know, make a, like a, I think combined a low six-figure salary, um, the uh, the daughter was ineligible for her tuition grant. She still lost her father, and, you know, he still died protecting us. It's not fair to any child to say, yeah, this loss was worse than yours. And uh, that's why 
guy I was looking at, that was where the bill originated from, was just being made aware of it and um, aware of the situation and seeing that's something we need to fix. Well, that's great. So let's uh, shift and talk about your house district. You, uh, I think last week or a couple weeks ago, had a press conference with the attorney general about a landfill that's either in or near your district. What's going on with that? So this was last Friday. Um, Well, last Friday is when the uh, lawsuit was announced. There's a a landfill called Arbor Hills, which is in Salem Township, which borders Northville Township, which is my district. And while Salem Township gets a lot of the benefits, such as, you know, um, uh, their property taxes are much lower because of the landfill. As a matter of fact, I think they're pretty much paid by the landfill. Um, Northville doesn't get any of that benefit, but we get the stink. And to top it off, um, this landfill has... um, more violations than any landfill in the state, pretty much, as far as uh, enforcement actions from Eagle or formerly the DEQ. But for them, a lot of these enforcement actions may have been coming along, but they were still committing a lot of violations. So um, we uh, had been really pushing for some legislation or something to hold these polluters, corporate polluters, more accountable for a long time. And I hear, I, I, you know, our residents, every time there's an odor report, they send it to our office as well. We held a town hall in my first year where 340 people filled uh, the um, Northville High School auditorium about this, and we brought Eagle down to answer their questions. And uh, so I've been in a lot of communication, myself and Senator Bohanke both. We've been working with local officials, the Northville Township Supervisor and their uh, Board of Trustees, but we also have been working, um, talking a lot to the Attorney General, making her aware of the situation and what was going on. And uh, when, uh, along with Eagle, the Attorney General's team looked into it, they discovered there was a basis for a lawsuit there. They need to come and do compliance. And so last week, um, she announced that um, on behalf of Eagle, they are um, they are filing suit against Arbor Hills. And this is a big win for my district because, one, they don't, you know, the biggest, I would say the biggest conversation I ever had with Arbor Hills was they said, well, what can we do, representative? And I said, simple, make the smell stop. Make the odors go away. Like, because a lot of it was because of their own violations. So um, working with local, and I got to say this, the, the way this all really came about were our residents. Our residents making their voices heard. We had the parents of an elementary school right by the landfill um, who were very vocal about it. And I just commend them for getting civically involved and making a difference because they were the ones that really spearheaded this. Um, myself, Senator Bohanke, and local officials uh, along with the attorney general, were just serving constituents because they were the ones that made the voices heard. Well, that's a great story, and uh, congratulations on that, Representative. Very much appreciated. Thank you. All right, Representative, last question for me. My understanding is you have some pets. Let's talk about them. What uh, What do you have? Absolutely. So um, I'm a big fan of uh, rescue pets, and we have, my wife and I have uh, a cat, or two cats and a dog, and we actually got the two cats first, and their names are Truman and Kennedy, so you might notice a theme there. And then we got the bulldog. Um, she's a girl, but, you know, she's presidential as well, so her name is Roosevelt, and we call her Rosie. So uh, we have three presidential rescue pets uh, that uh, keep us company here in, in the stressful times of the campaign. There's nothing like getting home after a long day of doors, and uh, the bulldog jumps up, even though she's 70 pounds and it might knock you over, but she's happy to see you. And then you got the cats running around, and uh, they're all presidential, so we have a good time. Well, that's awesome. State Representative Matt Kozer, thank you for being on the Friday Morning Podcast. Hey, thank you for having me. Much appreciated.
And that's it for another edition of the Friday Morning Podcast located at theballingerreport.com and at dentalresearch.com. And we'd like to give a special Friday Morning Podcast thanks to the band Little American Champ for the music of this podcast. <laughs> <laughs>